from recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. I'm your host, Steve Urban, and here is your RiderFlex podcast episode of the day. You know, I wish I had your hair. Jesus, you, you know, look, look at you with that. You, you're still a good looking guy. Uh, <laughs> I had to well, shave mine a long time ago. Did your dad have hair like that when he was older? I, I actually don't know who my real dad was. So, but biologically, I, I, I can't answer that question. But yeah, look, I, I have been lucky with the hair. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I'm. Mitch Sullivan on the RiderFlex podcast. Mitch, it's so good to have you. I'm really pleased to have you on the show. By the way, interestingly enough, I, you know, we were small talking here before we started recording. I didn't know this about you. So actually, I don't know who my real blood father is either. So we have that in, com in common. When, oh, okay. How old were you when you found out? 16. I was 16. Yeah. And, okay. um, and um, my mother told me in a fit of temper. Um, <laughs> and, and it was the one time. Wow, this is the weirdest opening to a recruitment interview I've ever had. Um, <laughs> and it was the one time I've experienced deja vu. As she was saying it, I felt like I'd lived that moment precisely before so really? I guess somewhere in my subconscious I knew perhaps um but yeah it was a bizarre experience bizarre. isn't that interesting I mean uh you know what by the way what are your thoughts on that did we did we live a previous life I don't know I uh, did we I don't know it's interesting yeah I, I I'd love that to be true I really would Who knows? right or I'd love it to be true that I get to do it again maybe uh, right. very similar story. Yeah. By the way, my mom, uh, I was 24, I think. Uh, yeah. and my mom just came to see me one day. She said, Hey, I need to tell you something. And, uh, she said, you know, your dad's not, not really your real, your real dad. And I, I was just like, oh, what? I was like, what, why are you telling me this now? <laughs> As opposed to telling you when you were very young, would you have preferred well, that? Right, I guess. I mean, maybe that was the best time. Uh, yeah, anyway, long story. But that's interesting that we have that in common. Yeah, so even to this day, you know, every time I go to the doctor, right, the doctor always says, well, is there any like this in your in your family history, you know, health-wise? And I always go, well, I don't know. I can give you half the story. <laughs> anyway, uh, Mitch, tell us, yeah, for the listeners, I mean, there's so much about you online already. Uh, you know, they can people can look up a bunch of stuff, right? Great, great blogs. YouTube interviews, your LinkedIn following is massive, but I did find it interesting. Now I didn't read your book yet and maybe all this, this is in there, but if you just do a quick scan for Mitch Sullivan online, you can't really see any personal, there's not a lot of personal stuff in there. So give me family, mom, dad, where you grew up, uh, you know, little stuff, you know, like that. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's deliberate really. I, I, you know, I, I, I try and be as entertaining as I can within the genre of recruitment rather than, you know, but you know, it's, it's ironic to say that just literally the other day, I posted a blog that I wrote 15, 16 odd years ago. I, I used to run a personal blog before I started blogging about recruitment mm -hmm. because it was around probably 12, 13 years ago that I started taking social media seriously as a business tool. So I, I used to post about stuff, politics, you know, some, you know, some of it a little bit inappropriate. My language has always been a little bit uh, industrial, shall we say? I like it. Um, I like it. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I guess that's looking back. That's where I, I, I practiced the craft of writing. Really, um, I, you know, I used to read a lot. I used to read a lot of people who were funny and controversial, and that helped shape me. So, um, so yeah, I, I try and entertain people through 
through the writing, my, what, what skills I have as a writer and what metaphors I use or what funny situations I draw, rather than shedding too much information about myself. Um, is that is that because you're a super secret guy? You got some dark no, stuff. Really. You, got some, you got some. You got some stuff no. behind the curtain. Hey, <laughs> hey I, I I just blurted out that I don't know I'm a real father to you, and I've only met <laughs> you twice. So, so, no, not really. I just I just think a lot of it is boring. I'm bored by a lot of that about people. I I'm only interested in that stuff with people that I know or know something mm -hmm. about because it takes on more relevance. But um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so yeah, I I I yeah, I don't feel the need to to share too much about who, who or what I am. But if you want a quick snapshot, I was born in London um, to an Irish mother um, back in the days when, you know, there were signs on the doors in London on boarding houses that said, uh, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, yeah? Wow. Um, and so I have three younger sisters. Uh, I went to school in a place called Southampton. Um, which is on the south coast of England. Uh, I moved back up to London when I was a very young man in, in, in my very early 20s. Um, I got into recruitment in my late 20s. My first ever job in recruitment was managing an agency, would you believe? Um, and uh, I thought that would be the easiest job in the world, managing four people, because I'd, I'd come from a sales job where I was managing 25 people. Um, and... Uh, it, it nearly burnt me out. I, I, but anyway, I quit after 14 months and got a job as a consultant in, a, in an agency that was a little bit more genteel in the way it went about its business. And, and that, that was how I, I kind of, I, I got stuck into recruitment really. So that, that was 30 odd years ago. Um, I moved to Geneva in 1996. Um, it was a woman. It's always a woman that takes you out of the country, isn't it? Uh, I have two children who are now in their early 20s. Uh, and I moved back here in 2005. Back any, grand, any grandchildren yet? No, not yet. Not well, yet. They'll melt your, your heart. I got a couple of granddaughters and uh, I was already, I was always a pretty type A driven, kind of a hardcore guy as an executive, but uh, you start getting grandchildren and you, you get, I don't know, it kind of softens you up a little bit. So that's probably coming for you pretty soon. Yeah. Did you, well, did you, uh, too soon, huh? <laughs> did you have the entrepreneurial bug when you were you know working for the agencies were you thinking i'm going to have my own thing like where, where did uh, that come from no no i i wouldn't class myself as an entrepreneur i really okay. wouldn't um okay honestly i i i um i've been in recruitment i think 31 32 years mm -hmm. um and i came into it relatively late by comparison and I've only, I only spent the first, what, five, five and a half years being employed since that. So since I was in my early thirties, I've been self-employed. Mm -hmm. um, with me, I, I, I set up a recruitment business in Geneva. Um, and that, that has some highs and lows. Not, I'm not going to bore with the details of that, but you know, the, 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 it, it never got beyond three people. Um, Geneva is a different market. It's quite small. The English speaking market is smaller still. Uh, and I was doing things a little bit differently because, you know, my thing is copywriting, recruitment, advertising. Uh, and that was my USP is putting out ads that were strikingly different to all the other ads that were coming out in the, in the local market. So that was early on for you, that, that the whole passion around writing and the, and the, and the ads and everything for you, that was a big deal as a recruiter early on. I, I guess it's always been in my DNA. Maybe it's the Irishness in me. Um, okay. I, I've got this need to wax lyrical about things or, 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 or to 
make the explanation of things more entertaining than perhaps they 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 are, are always but yeah so look I'm, I'm not an entrepreneur i i've worked for myself predominantly because i'm a difficult person to employ i'm a difficult <laughs> person to manage um for a variety of reasons um and i learned very quickly that um that i'm best served working for myself and then working in collaboration with freelancers and temporary partners rather than trying to build anything you know okay. I, I always sort of building companies as you know there's some kind of male monumentalism about it anyway but maybe that's just my excuse for that i don't think i would ever have been very good at it actually um tell and, us and about not, yeah sorry go on steve well yeah. tell it so, so tell us now then i mean you had a great career uh, you know overall you know just kind of working for yourself and building things but tell us specifically give us the elevator pitch for for copywriting for recruiters.com go for it the elevator pitch um we uh, the simplest one is we help recruiters sell jobs more effectively in writing that that's it um when i came into recruitment steve every single candidate and client relationship started from a telephone it, i mean it had to there, there was pretty much nothing else mm -hmm. other than fax machines um today if pretty much every single candidate and client relationship starts from a keyboard, whether it's a message, a social media post, an email, an in-mail, you've got to be able to write. It's so more, you know, much more important than it was when I came into the business. You know, you, you had to be fluent um, verbally. Now it's more complicated. You, you still need, you need to be, you know, effective at communicating, but I really do think the ability to write is absolutely paramount. And I know I sound biased, but I, I, I've, I've yet to hear anyone give me a counter argument to that. It's, it's critical, I think. And you started, uh, when you started this particular entity, copywritingforrecruiters.com, hmm. was your target and is your target still just, you know, recruiters? Or do you also go to the hiring managers for company and say, let me help you with your copy? Is it both? Yeah, well, look, we don't help people with their copy. I mean, I, as a sideline, people will approach me to ask me if I'll get involved in building okay. ads. You know, okay. I, I, I know a bunch of copywriters and I'll bring in people that I think will be suitable okay. and will we'll write stuff for clients. Um, but the, so the people that come on, the, that take the training are recruiters for the most part. Probably okay. I would say of all the people, we, we've run the course now for six years, first five of which were in the classroom stepping up and down the country um and uh i would say the mix has been probably 60 percent agency 40 percent corporate or in-house really okay okay very very good okay um, all right and what what i what i've seen happen if you're interested is look when, when, when i had the idea to start it you know that whole everything starts from a keyboard thing was something that I thought, you know, there's something in this and, and and all the ads that I see are awful. And they're not just not very good, they're awful. They show the reader so such little respect. I thought there's got to be a market. I'd already moved into coaching anyway in another area. Um, and I happened to know um, somebody that I'd known for quite a while. We're not friends, but I'd known her for a long while. She's a copywriter. I'd used her a couple of times. I'd noticed that she'd moved into copywriting training. And I figured that would make a good partnership. Me, the recruiter, with a very strong copywriting sensitivity, and mm. Jackie, who knows 
very little about recruitment, but as a trainer, because I figured I would need help in formulating the right kind of training approach. Okay. Um, and it was one, one of the best decisions I ever made was teaming up with her. Luckily, she agreed when I pitched the idea to her and it took off really quick. Um, in the early days, it, most of the corporate recruiters that came onto the course worked for smaller companies, probably because they felt they needed to be more competitive. But over the last 18 months, I have been almost inundated with inquiries and bookings from much larger corporates. Okay. Okay. The caliber of their job postings. Yeah. Tell us about the class a little bit or the training. Is it, is it over, is it all online? Is it in person? It is, is now. It many days? Yeah, yeah it is now. So look, before it would be one day in a classroom. Okay. Basically the morning would be mostly theory, which we would explore certain sort of concepts in some detail, back it up with some research. So, so obviously, you know, all training has to have some interaction and activity from the delegates, which, which happen. And then as the day wore on, each delegate would then start to do more writing using what they've learned. So that by the end of the day, they will have probably written the best job ad they've ever written in their life. So they would mm. leave knowing that they could do it, which I always think is critical because training, most of it is about the practice and the reinforcement. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I decided a couple of years ago, we were only going to make any real money out of this if we could put it online and reach a bigger audience. Um, I, I, I kind of own this particular training niche in the UK. To be fair, I created the niche. It didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so, so now the challenge is to get more people around the rest of the world knowing what it is and, and buying it. So what it looks like now is people do that morning part of the course online. So all the theory is done on the online course. It takes about three hours. They can do it in as many sittings as they want. They've got access for a month. Then for a corporate booking, um, every so, so let's say we take a booking of 10 people from a, a large in-house recruitment team. They'll all go and do the course in their own time. They'll then finish that up, write a new job ad using what they've learned from that online course send it to me and then Jackie and I would then incorporate that into the learning points in a half day workshop that we run over Zoom for those 10 people where we will then do some reinforcement coaching and get them to a point where they rewrite their ad so that it's even better. Yeah. So, so okay. we, we, we've tried to create a program that's as similar to the original classroom course as possible because it was so effective and it was so popular and it took off so quickly because people just took to the internet to say how much they loved it and how great it was without me asking them to so so the word of mouth has been great so far did you did you have this uh vision where you think where you were thinking god look at all this copy all this copy sucks like people can't write job ads my god i gotta help people i i want to figure out a way to help people and, and it kind of, it was born from your desire to, to want to teach people how to do it better or were you, or was it a combination of, I don't want to just be a recruiter anymore. I want to, I want to go into teaching and I want to, I, yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, yeah. Look, as we get older, recruitment is a tough way to make a living. You know that. <laughs> we all know, anyone listening into this knows that. Yeah. Um, but I guess I, I still fill jobs from time to time. Okay. I think like as much as I used to. But, you know, last year I filled six jobs. Okay. Um, 
increasingly more of them tend to be in the recruitment industry because I have quite a big network of recruiters. So, so the thinking is that I could probably reach more people than, than some campaigns run, run directly. Um, so I still keep my hand in, as they say, which, which does lend me a certain credibility that perhaps some trainers mm -hmm. don't always have. Mm -hmm. um, I moved into coaching to teach re agency recruiters how to sell retained. Um, ah. so that's how, yeah, and I, I realized within a year that I was probably never going to be able to make a living at that. But that's, that's the thing that I'm probably the most passionate about and the most knowledgeable about. Because I, I stopped working contingency myself around 20, 20 odd years ago. Um, and then obviously the copywriting thing happened. Uh, it took off real quick. So that now consumes me. Um, I, I, I really enjoy it because this is going to sound somewhat grandiose, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, I like the idea that I'm making a contribution to improving the gene pool of the industry. Yeah. Given yeah. that everything is online, everything is visual. I just think it's absolutely critical that people sell their jobs in a way that uh, is is um is more effective and and for ads to be more effective all ads not just recruitment ads people have to in, in, at least partially enjoy reading them good yeah. stuff good stuff let me ask you a couple of questions here specifically uh around the content of the copy should companies include should the copy include the company's quote cause or mission, especially as it relates to any kind of social issues or save the planet or, you know, Hey, 1% of our proceeds goes towards uh, saving, saving okay. some frog uh, somewhere, uh, you know, like what, <laughs> what are you, no. you know, it no. seems like my, I guess my question is just centered around the fact that it seems like, Every every company seems thinks they have to have some sort of like magical cause that wants to uh, you know entice uh, the consumer to buy their product beyond the service and product they make. What what are your thoughts there? Okay, how can I give you a simple answer to that? If if they are in the business of selling products or services that contribute towards the sustainability of the planet, or or some other altruistic kind of imperative that improves society in some way then yeah why not sell the job off the back of that particularly if you need or want people with the same values mm. yeah okay. okay but the problem is i see too many job ads where companies are trying to sell the job off their values and the values are just an arbitrary set of words on a wall which is you know right. passion energy you know commitment, <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> and to be fair those aren't worth the wallpaper they're written on um for the most part so but but if 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 a company donate a percentage of its revenue to causes no i i think it would be cheap to try and sell employment off the back of that mm -hmm. i don't think that's a strong enough reason for someone to entrust their career with a company simply because mm -hmm. they give five percent of their revenue to 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 charity mm -hmm. um should should, should CEOs be commenting on social media about uh, every about about all these uh, sticky social issues that are out there? Should they be taking sides on things? What are your thoughts? Well, 
when you say stoke, sticky socially, where are we talking Trump or are we talking? Yeah, uh, you, you, you name it, uh, Trump, masks, COVID, I don't know, you know, <laughs> you oh, name boy, it. That, do you know, ordinarily, I would say yes, I think they should. Okay. But the caveats to that are we are living in a particularly polarized um, world right now, mm -hmm. you know, which I'll be honest, frightens the bejesus out of me sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. I never thought it would happen in my lifetime. Um, and because we've both got kids, I, I can't help but wonder what the next 10, 20, 30 years is gonna look like. Um, but ordinarily, I, I, you know, but equally, I, I think it, it, it's effective to show some humanity, um, show, show extra dimensions. I, I guess a lot of it is down to how it's done. Some people can pull that off quite well. I've seen CEOs on LinkedIn do that brilliantly. I can't remember their names right now, but, but there's one in particular that I've noticed the last few weeks that he's getting tons of, of attraction and engagement, but it's tricky. It's tricky. I think people need to know themselves before they enter into those waters. You know, companies, they'll take a side on, uh, you know, if they're, if they're liberal or conservative or whatever, sometimes they will. Um, and then what happens to the HR manager then, right? The CEO of a company uh, has, has openly said, you know, they're super conservative or whatever. And the HR and the recruiter that work for the company check the social media of a candidate and uh, the social media of the candidate is complete opposite with a bunch of yeah. uh, pretty uh, sticky messaging. Look, I, I, I think candidates that get disqualified for reasons such as that is just going to gradually make the, the company less and less effective. The gene pool is just going to become shallower than the piss puddle of a chihuahua with a water infection in time. You know, um, the, the companies that perform the best, according to the little bit of research I've done, are those that, that embrace the greater diversity, be it, be it gender, race, politics, sex, whatever, um, because it's healthy, because people get exposed to different thinking, uh, and there's no reason why we can't we can't disagree with people without being polite and civilized. Absolutely no reason whatsoever. Can't we do that more? Okay, let's just take a pause right yeah. there for the listeners. Can we please just do that more? <laughs> that would be great. That Can we just great. have like a regular conversation and you say you like blue and I say I like green and we're still friends? <laughs> yeah. Listen, I, I, I've, I've had conversations with other recruiters that could have got somewhat fractious you know, where they've worked for companies where they have felt they don't need to sell their jobs, you know? Um, really? Wow. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, what some of them I've agreed with because if they work for a company that have got a certain reputation or have got a certain brand awareness or brand equity, then yeah, if you've got that trade off it, um, just post, just post job descriptions. Um, and if people, if, if there's instant recognition of the name and whatever values that are associated with that name, because that's what a brand is, it's the values that people instinctively associate with the name. Um, mm -hmm. So what about, so, yeah. yeah. What, what about video? Uh, what about videos in the copy? I see, I see recruiters now, they'll make a video about, they'll be talking about the job, they'll throw out their video on LinkedIn. What are your thoughts on that? And where, where is the video relationship going between the recruiter and the candidate? Uh, what do you I don't know. I, I, I tend not to try to get sucked into making predictions. I don't know. It's clearly becoming more popular as a medium. 
technology is making it more uh, um, feasible, obviously. Um, look, at the one end, I see videos where people are talking in front of a camera and are reciting a job spec. Yeah, and I, I just think, great, wow. Yeah, I can't, I, I can't scan the video, at least the job spec, I can scan it and decide within 30 seconds that I'm not going to read it and move on. But a video is, is, is it, yeah, you've got to commit to watching it, haven't you? Um, however, I'm excited by the prospect of video in terms of it just opens up so many, many other creative doors in terms of selling a broader employment proposition or a particular group of jobs. Um, mm -hmm. The problem I have, and if you like, I will make this one short-term prediction, one of the things that frustrates me the most about our industry is how little marketing sensitivity there is that exists within it in general. Yeah. People yep. seem to want to cut corners, not put too much effort. Um, and, you know, to be fair, I suspect some of it is because jobs in particular have a limited shelf life. So you think, well, why should we craft something that's wonderful that, you know, it's only going to be out there a month and we're going to fill the job. You know, normally my response is well that job will come around several times again you can rerun ads over and over yeah great point great but look getting back to video i think that I, I i'm quite excited about what can be done in terms of attracting people to particular employment propositions through the use of video but i think it's probably going to work best in conjunction with other things as opposed to on its own I want to switch gears here and, and go back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, contingency versus retained. I know that's one of your favorite topics, and I know you're a huge contingency fan. <laughs> you, you also, you, your business is run on a retained basis. Isn't yes, it? absolutely. Riderflex is a retained recruiting firm. Yes. And uh, I've done several. Yeah, I've done several podcast uh, episodes on that topic where I'm just blasting contingency in the whole process. Uh, I'd like to get your, um, thoughts. How about this? Just for the CEO listening right now yeah. that, that thinks, oh man, that contingency sounds so good. So wow, I can, I can get these firms working for me and I don't really have to pay them anything up front. I don't have to pay them unless I actually find me somebody. Wow. That sounds really cool. Talk, talk to those CEOs and tell them why contingency is bad for their company okay. uh, versus retain. Contingency is, 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 is a legacy system, actually. And because and I've been around long enough to have been recruiting before the internet, but before the internet, contingency made complete and utter sense. It really did. I used to sell it as a benefit mm. back in my early days in recruiting. Because let me paint a scenario. A CEO or a hiring manager has a vacancy. They decide they don't want to run an ad because ads back then were quite expensive. You had to open lots of envelopes to read CVs and, and yeah, it, it was it was time consuming. So they decide they're going to talk to three, four or five agencies. So they so in our city, we, we were a sales recruitment agency. We would fill sales jobs, sales management roles. Um, a CEO or a sales director would talk to us. We would take a brief. We insisted we would need at least 20 minutes to have a conversation with at least 20 minutes. Um, so he would talk to us and probably three of our competitors which we, we knew he, he, he was going to do that. Um, a part of the farm was trying to outperform our competitors. Um, and part of the way that we were trying to outperform our competitors was taking a better brief and getting better insight. But, but from, the, from the sales director's perspective, he would, he would invest in four conversations with four agencies. And those four agencies would all go and look in four completely different places for candidates. 
because back then proprietary databases were the norm. Um, candidates used to have to physically go into an agency's office to register, and they mm. would rarely do that with more than two agencies. So mm. there was mm. very little candidate duplication back then. So, gotcha. so, the, the, so the hiring manager was getting free ad response um, um, and was only paying if he hired someone. So, you know, it kind of made sense. It didn't impair on the quality of the candidate. Today, in that same scenario, the sales director will talk to four agencies. The agencies probably won't even take a brief. They'll just accept a job spec in an email as the brief, right. which, as we both know, tells you next to bugger all. Um, certainly tells you nothing about how you're going to sell the job to people. Um, those, those four agencies will then go and all look in exactly the same places. <laughs> so they'll end up contacting the same candidates about the same job the better of those candidates will grow tired of that very quickly and will think, well, if the company are this messy in how they hire, what are they going to be like to work for? So there's already an instant drop off in the quality of candidates that are going to respond. Um, there's more duplication of candidates because the same candidates will get submitted more than once, often because the recruiter hasn't really spoken to the candidate, they've just found their CV and decided to forward it on because they're under so much time pressure because they know they're racing other agencies. So look, bottom line, the, the caliber of candidate is massively reduced. Yeah, so, so we're in, all I, of my, in all of my conversations with, with hiring managers who have retained me, they've retained me for fundamentally three reasons. One, I guarantee I'll fill it. So they haven't got to talk to anyone else which is a ballsy way to, to, to justify it. But the other, the other one in significant, significant benefit is, is the caliber of candidate would be much, much higher. And when they ask me how or why that's, that's going to happen, I tell them, well, look, I'm gonna sell your job more effectively than any contingency recruiter, because I'm gonna hire a copywriter and pay them a couple of hundred bucks to produce a great job ad. Uh, and that job ad will also inform the, the, the kind of messaging that I send out to those people that I'm going to headhunt. Uh, it'll also form the, some of the content for any social media stuff that I do. So the job's going to be sold well. And because you're retaining me, I'm going to have the time and the scope to interview candidates properly and assess them against your particular criteria. So the, the, the final output are, are candidates that can do the job and want to do the job. So they perform better at the interview. Lo and behold, the one that gets hired tends to stay longer. Magically. <laughs> yeah, you know, the whole racing resumes point you made there. I, I think that's one of the biggest things is the CEOs or the hiring managers or the HR directors, they just have to understand you're forcing this, this atmosphere of contingency firms knowing that, that speed is really what matters more than anything. And so they are literally shoving over resumes as fast as they can go without fully vetting the candidate, without spending time with the candidate, without selling the candidate on the job. You're just getting this watered down uh, pile of, of, of candidates and resumes that, that probably aren't even a match. And, the, and you're right, the, the recruiter may not have even talked to them, uh, which is crazy. And by the way, taking a resume and shoving it over to a client, that's not recruiting. <laughs> That's administrative work. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, Look, the, the one exception to, to the, the, those scenarios are jobs where there are likely to be hundreds, if not thousands, of potential candidates. 
it, then it, I, I'd argue it doesn't matter. But for jobs that are historically tricky to fill and yeah. or it's looking for candidates that are not generally going to be unemployed, I think it's madness to hire more, more than one agency to fill it. You've just got to do your due diligence and make sure you pick the right recruiter or the right agency and give them yeah, the talk they need. Not to mention, you know, and we could spend hours on this topic, you know, you also, as a company, you know, you want to have a relationship with a retained firm that really, truly gets to know you over time. I mean, not just the original briefing meeting where you should be talking about culture and meeting officers of the company, but, but you know, so often, and this has happened with RiderFlex, right? We'll go into the briefing meeting and the discovery meeting that I'll call it, and then we'll try to get to know them and we'll meet them in person and we'll ask them about their culture and all that stuff. And they'll say, my culture is A, B, and C. And then as we get to know them, when we spend a couple of years with them, then we let them know, I know actually your culture is X, Y, and Z. I know you didn't know that, but here's, here's, here's why. So, because so many people can't really identify what their true company culture is, or they think it's something that it's not. But my, my point is, as a, as a retained firm, you really get to know the company and you can actually help the CEO and the hiring managers really help them understand what the culture is a little bit more. You really know the, the, the people inside the building and you get to really learn what candidates probably work best with, within this organization and with certain hiring managers. I mean, it's a relationship over time that will end up producing better results, so much better than some shitty ass contingency firm that's just shoving resumes. I, I literally, and I'm going to just rant here for just a second. I literally had a guy call me the other day and he calls me and says, hey, Steve, Listen, I, I saw that you guys are recruiting for, for this job on your careers page on RiderFlex, and, and I have the perfect candidates for, for, for this job. This is a recruiter calling me. And I said, how the hell? You don't even know my client. Like, you've never even met my client. How do you think you have the perfect candidates? I'm like, this is what's wrong with the industry right here. This guy calling me. Uh, and literally, he just saw the posting on our page. Then he went on Indeed, grabbed some candidates off of Indeed, didn't talk to those candidates, and tried to send me the resumes. I'm thinking to myself, this is the shit that's wrong with the industry right now. And it's driving me freaking nuts. Okay, I'm done ranting about it now. Yeah, yeah. No, but you make a great point about the more you work with a, with a company on a retained basis, you're going to gradually get better and better and more yes. effective at filling jobs for them. And that's where Absolutely. your margin comes from because you get better at it and you do it quicker. Absolutely. Absolutely. How about this? Next topic here. How about boutique firms? versus big company firms. Again, I'd like for you to kind of talk to the CEO, right? So it's a CEO that, I don't know, his company's doing, you know, 50 to 100 million, maybe, maybe smaller. And uh, they really need some help now. They have a couple of HR people, maybe one HR person, they're underwater. They don't have time to do the recruiting. So they're looking to outsource, you know, and then you got the big names flashing in front of them, you know, Corn Ferry or Robert Half or whatever. And they're trying to decide who to use. What are your thoughts there around big companies versus boutique firms? Look, it's a, most questions, most of my answers to most questions are, well, it depends. And this is, this is no different. Um, look, in general, and this is a personal thing, I prefer boutique over national, multinational, large agencies. Okay. Um, I don't, I'm not sure I want to get into why, but look, I, the problem I have with most large agencies is that most of the, they tend to hire people straight out of 
university. So they're somewhat naive to begin with. I think there's an element of brainwashing or, or codifying that goes on so that those agencies that make it through quite a rigorous onboarding process of three or six months end up with either the conscious or the subconscious belief that they work for the greatest recruitment agency in the world, um, which, which is rarely true because if only because they've got systems and they're quite rigid. Um, um, so, I, you know, I generally think recruiters that have learned their craft in the wild west of boutique agencies rather than within the systematic kind of regimented thinking of larger recruitment businesses generally are better but over and above that i think a company should select a, a recruiter rather than a recruitment agency mm. i just have to think most of the best recruiters are working in boutiques not in large multinational recruitment businesses okay okay i appreciate your thoughts on that i, I i'll just add one thing to that I just told her. I just told her a prospect, a prospect yesterday we met with. Um, I just said, "Hey, look, here's the deal. You can hire Riderflex, and we can we can fill these jobs for you, or you can call one of the big firms, and they'll send one of their employees down here. Um, and I can promise you that that employee of that giant firm will not have the same passion and care as much about doing a good job as we will." because this is my personal livelihood. And, and you're talking to the owner of the firm, which, which by the way, if we do a good job, I can pay my mortgage. And if we don't, I don't get to. <laughs> and so you get a little more passion from the boutique firms, I think, uh, than you do just employees. I would just add that in there as well. No, um, no I, I, I've used agency. I, I spent nearly four years working in-house, uh, Steve, between 2006, 2010. I saw that. Um, yeah, and I've got, I've got to tell you, so many light bulbs went on on my head during that time. So it joined up a lot of dots for me in terms of why the industry is the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, but look, I dealt with a lot of agencies in some of those gigs. I, I, yeah, they're all contract roles. Um, um, and um, some of them, I mean, the arrogance that was on display from recruiters working for big agencies who'd, who'd been doing the job for about an hour and a half. I mean, seriously, you think, Jesus Christ, what the fuck? <laughs> Where does this come from? Um, right. Anyway, anyway. Uh, how, about, how about generalists versus uh, specialty firms? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. I think becoming a generalist becomes easier as you get older and smarter and wiser and more commercially savvy. Someone not unlike yourself, Steve, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, I became a generalist when I moved to Switzerland. I had to okay. because it was such a much smaller country. I went from being a sort of a, a vertical specialist, sorry, a horizontal specialist. I was a sales recruiter to one that filled all kinds of jobs. Um, so it accelerated my kind of commercial nous, which was a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. So again, it, it depends. It depends. Um, most jobs are easy to understand. Many jobs, you know, there are, you know, there are certain technical jobs that, that intimidate me a little bit. I think, oh, there's a lot there I don't understand. Yeah. I'm going to have to find <laughs> someone in to help me to, to, to get the project done. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think there are pros and cons depending on the situation. I do think generalists, you're right, as you get older, I mean, I'm 53, I've been hiring and managing people since I was freaking 17 years old. So 
I can read people pretty damn fast. And so you're right, as a, as a generalist, if you're a little older and a little more seasoned and you've ran some companies, it's definitely easier to, easier to live in that world than being a specialty recruiter. How about this one? Here's another favorite topic. And I know we could spend an hour on every single one of these, but um, what are your thoughts on pretty faced recruiters? That's what I call it. <laughs> and, I'm gonna, and I'm not just talking about females. I'm talking about males too. So men and women. Um, it just really drives me nuts, Mitch, when I see, I'll see a posting from some good looking, super hot, attractive, 26 year old male or female, um, that's been in recruiting, like you said, for about an hour. And before that they were like a nanny or something. <laughs> and, and the title says executive recruiter, um, yeah. talent acquisition consultant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. International headhunter. Yeah, yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, Mitch, I'm like, why in the hell, as a CEO, would you put the trust of finding and selecting the right people for your company in the hands of this person? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and, do you know, I've had these discussion stroke arguments online uh, a few years back with recruitment people. Um, I, I've voiced the same sentiment you've just you've just expressed, you know. And of course, the you know they come back with you being unkind. People have got to start somewhere, you know. And yeah, they do absolutely. But you know, if 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 that pretty person was two weeks ago or six months ago working as a nanny, then she should be or he, sorry, he or she should be recruiting nannies, yeah, <laughs> or, or add a push people in social care, you know, right. in the same way that somebody who, you know, a year ago was, was a retail assistant in, in Gap um, should be filling retail jobs right. because they bring some, some experience, some knowledge, some understanding, some empathy of that environment, which will give them more credibility with both candidates and clients. And that is the perfect vehicle through which to learn about recruitment. Mm, I remember, I remember when, I, when I lived in Geneva, because um, when I first went to Geneva, I taught English to business people just to make some money, because I, until I worked out what I was going to do when I got there, because okay. I, okay. I couldn't speak a word of French when I got there. Um, and um, and I, and I taught him, one of the people that taught me how to be an English teacher said, look, the best way to teach people what they don't know is through what they do know. And that's always stuck with me, you know. Um, so. So, yeah, so in answer to those pretty young people that you talk about, I think they should stick to learning recruitment through the prism of what they already know. And that's based on whatever job they've done previously. I also, going off at a tangent slightly, I wish the industry tried to attract more people from other work disciplines to be recruiters specializing in that work discipline. So. Mm. Is it, is it out of the realms of possibility that mechanical engineers could, some could become recruiters placing mechanical engineers or IT people or marketing people or salespeople? And on top of that, I wish they would, I wish, I wish they were former hiring managers, right? I think, I think if you, if you worked inside of a company and you were a software engineer and then you became a manager of some sort, and then you have, you actually have some years of experience managing and dealing with people and interviewing people and then you turn into a recruiter 
that's great. I mean, that, that yeah. you know, those, those usually make the best recruiters. The, the problem is, Steve, the, those types of people that recruitment is, is, is not an option for them because the salaries are too low. Yeah. It's, it's low base, high commission. Yeah. Um, and, and, and look, most agencies are offering low base, high commission because they're working on contingency and they don't know where or when their money's going to come in. So if, if they right. went fully retained, they could pay higher salaries and attract higher caliber people to work as recruiters. It's all a vicious circle, really. It is really, it is really. Okay. I know we have a few minutes left here. I want to ask you some, some general kind of wrap up uh, questions. Um, and maybe some of these aren't necessarily on recruiting just because you are an opinionated guy, which I really love. And you're a straight shooter. You don't, you don't, uh, you know, you don't bullshit people. And I love that about some of your other interviews. Uh, I think that that makes up who you are, which I think is awesome. And that's one of the reasons I wanted you on the show. Thank you. What quick, quickly, and I'll try to rapid, not rapid fire, but I'll try to move through these pretty fast. Future of remote work versus people going into uh, giant buildings and sitting in cubicles. What are your thoughts? Oh, it's growing. To what extent? I, 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 I can't tell. Um, there's pros and cons. Um, uh, I, I think more white collar jobs will be able to be done from home. But I think they people companies run the risk of losing some valuable thinking and innovation by not having people in the office as well. So they've got to find a blend that works right for them, their culture, their sector, whatever it is they're selling. Um, but you know, a lot of great ideas get formed by people in offices sitting mm -hmm. around a coffee machine or having lunch together or whatever. And that's Agreed. not as easy to get done at home or via a Zoom call. Agreed. Agreed. I see some sort of a blend. I don't know, a couple of days at home, a few days in the office, something like that probably is where we're headed. Um, how about this? Here's a, here's a big topic for you. Censorship online. So I guess if you want to call it that, um, you know, I know that you uh, have put out some stuff in the past that got a lot of attention. We don't have to go into all those details, but what are your thoughts on putting out uh, content on social media that might uh, draw a spark and then these social media platforms just turning people off like just turning I mean you have for example I'll just use your profile for example you got like 42,000 followers on LinkedIn you've spent years now developing your profile on LinkedIn what happens if you say something one day that LinkedIn doesn't agree with and they just turn your profile off yeah no, no, that, that, that yeah, that's a worry. It really is because it, it, it's my by far and away my biggest sales channel, without a yep. doubt. And, but you know, yep. and those 42, 43,000 followers, only 12,000 of those are actual connections. So there's a lot of people have made the decision to follow me mm -hmm. rather than connect with me, which which tells me that I'm doing something right in terms of output. Mm -hmm. um, it's a balance. You've, you've, you've got to you've got to be capable of being a little bit provocative without going too far I you know um phew, I look I like LinkedIn because it's a it's business and that tempers a lot of people in in terms of you know keep keep keeps them clean to a certain extent in terms of how far they're prepared to go um you can't carry any kind of authority um or push any kind of content on LinkedIn anonymously you've got to be using a real per you've got to be a real person and that's that's the problem with places like Twitter is it's, it's too easy to say bullshit and to say nasty, hurtful, horrible things when, when nobody knows who you are. Mm -hmm. um, 
so censorship from a from um taking ownership of your content thing i think the best form of censorship is the is the one that people do to themselves really mm, mm, mm. okay it's, so so yeah. so should so should twitter have the power to turn people off anytime they want yes or no yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> it's their business they do what they like absolutely okay. um but you know if linkedin threw me out I'd, I'd, I'd want to know a really, really good reason why they've done it, because if they didn't, I'd be taking them to court for damages. Um, well, see, that's the so that's why I asked. Right. So that's why I asked the question. That's really why I'm going down this path is because so many businesses now, so many entities are built on these channels. Right. People yeah, have spent yeah. years uh, with the following and their content and whether it's maybe it's a YouTube channel they have. Right. And, and their entire income is based off their YouTube following and the products they sell on their channel. And then all of a sudden Google decides, yeah, yeah we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take, take you off of YouTube. No, I honestly, LinkedIn is my prime. I, I mess around on Twitter from time to time. I hate Facebook um, for I on a number of levels. I won't go into that now, maybe another time, but LinkedIn have always been very, very light touch to the point of almost being absent. Um, I've been on forums before where I've, you know, I've barely been typing the words F-U-C, the letters F-U-C-K, and I'm getting a message from an administrator going, what the hell are you doing? Um, <laughs> you know, link, link, LinkedIn is, I think, very open, very fair. It lets people moderate itself, and it works because you don't have any anonymous assholes on there, basically. Mm -hmm. Very yeah. good. Okay, so for the listeners, and by the way, I have like 50 other questions I wanted to ask you, which we're not going to have time for, which means I'm probably going to have to get you back on the show. But for the listeners, your book, by the way, on recruitment, your yeah. book titled On Recruitment, they can find it on Amazon, right? Yeah. Okay, all right. And then copywritingforrecruiters.com. Um, you can go there and find out uh, everything you need to know about taking the training and so forth. Plus, you can look up Mitch on LinkedIn and you can become the... 40 i don't know you got 43,000 followers on there so they can you they can follow you there where you always put out a bunch of great content and and so forth and so i just want to encourage the listeners uh, to look you up because uh, you you're doing a lot of great things mitch i appreciate you being on the show today you're too kind thank you if you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know please share this with them if you've enjoyed today's episode please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button the RiderFlex podcast features entrepreneurs, business executives, and the stories behind how they got there, as well as daily tips on career advice and job interviewing. You can visit RiderFlex.com to learn more about us and get information and pricing on the recruiting and consulting services we provide. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.